is Murder in the Rain, where each week Emily Rowney, Alicia Holland, and Josh McCullough tell true crime stories of the Pacific Northwest. Murder in the Rain contains graphic content. Listener discretion is advised. Before we get started with today's story, I wanted to give an update on the Wilma Acosta case. Sadly, Wilma was recovered from the water under the St. John's Bridge on January 2nd. The police are maintaining their story, implying she took her own life, but they have also not fully ruled out foul play. Neither has her family. So for now, the family will continue with their own investigation and await the coroner's report. We ask that you continue to donate what you can to their GoFundMe, which you can find on our Facebook or in the Searching for Wilma Acosta group, as they are now having to pack up Wilma's life and make arrangements for her final resting place. They will also continue to seek legal and private investigator services. I would personally like to thank everyone who joined the group, who shared Wilma's story, who donated, who came out to the searches or vigils. The family has been appreciative of each and every one of you. I will be doing a full episode on Wilma in the future once we have more answers. And now to Josh's case. The Martin family loaded into their cream and red station wagon for a trip up the highway. It was December 7, 1958, and the family was on the hunt for a Christmas tree and greens to make wreaths. From Portland, they drove east into the Columbia River Gorge. Parents Ken and Barbara were in the front, with Ken driving and their daughters Susie, Virginia, and Barbie in the back. The Columbia River Highway, the first paved highway in the Pacific Northwest, was called the Scenic Highway of America, if not the world, in a 1923 geological study. It was paved smooth, had very little grade, and even its harshest curves were gentle. Flanked on each side by immense valley walls, the sights contained along this drive are spectacular. There's Crown Point, Multnomah and Bridal Veil Falls, dense forestry, and rich wildlife, along with the Roaring River and Mount Hood snow-topped in the distance. The world seems much larger as you travel the gorge. The only visual comparison that comes close is being a hobbit in Lord of the Rings. So the gorge was the ideal place for a memorable Christmas tree outing, and the Martins were going to make a day of it. Their station wagon was hard to miss. It was a 1954 Ford Country Sedan 6, a gleaming four-door behemoth with a big old dumper, sporting nine seats and rolling on white wall tires. It was painted off-white with red trim and tended to draw the eye as it passed. Ken Martin used his credit card to purchase five gallons of gas at the Standard Oil service station 40 miles east of Portland in Cascade Locks at some point that day, and the family had burgers and fries at the Paradise Snack Bar in Hood River 20 miles east of the Locks between 2 and 4.30 p.m. The restaurant was nearly empty that afternoon, and their server, Clara York, remembered them well. Everything from their clothing and hairstyles to their complete food orders and jolly demeanor. Another server, Alfred Knotts, also recalled seeing the family. The Martins were a familiar sight, as their trip into the gorge to hack down a tree was a recurring tradition. The Martins returned to their vehicle after their meal and turned onto the highway. They may have been seen buying gas at that standard oil station in Cascade Locks after this or before. The timeline just isn't clear. As night fell on the Martins' block, a few neighbors noticed the family hadn't returned. 
The station wagon wasn't parked under the carport, and the lights inside the home were out. No one was home, and they would never be home again. Five members of the Martin family vanished that day, most of them without a trace. The Martins lived in northeast Portland, on a city block that came to be called Candy Lane, from Ken, Barbara, and their kids' efforts to make their block of Northeast 56th Avenue, between Hancock and Broadway, the holiday neighborhood in Portland. Giant plywood candy canes four feet tall lined the street each holiday season. They were hand-painted in red and white stripes and passed out to neighbors by cheer spreaders, the Martins, who'd lived there for 25 years. I think most cities have a main street or a couple of neighborhood blocks where residents go bonkers with their holiday decorations. And they, you have like, you know, tours in your car. You can walk it and get cocoa and yeah. listen to carolers. That's what was what Candy Lane was kind of like. The original Peacock Lane, if you will. Uh, well, not the original, but sort of like a side Peacock Lane. Okay. Uh, Peacock Lane started, I think, in 1929. Oh, yeah. You're and right. so it was still like a big, you know, it was just like sort of a secondary Peacock. Yeah, lane. they're like, we can have yeah. that. We don't need to go to their street. Sadly, Candy Lane is no more, yet Portland still features Peacock Lane, which is a four-block stretch of elaborately decorated homes, which provides an immensely popular festive gridlock experience, <laughs> as you can attest. <laughs> yeah, Emily. I did it this year for the first time. Was it hell on earth? It was crazy. Like, the line walking was far longer than the, even the cars driving through, so we drove through. I wasn't about to wait in that line. <laughs> yeah, you don't have that much cheer. No. Nope. <laughs> In the home on Candy Lane lived Ken and Barbara, along with their daughters Barbie, Susie, and Virginia. They had an older son, Donald, 28, who enlisted in the Navy and was stationed in New York. The day after the Martins left home and hadn't returned, Monday, December 8th, 1958, Charlotte Dorsey was one of the first to realize something was amiss. Her nieces, Susie and Virginia Martin, who attended Rose City School where she taught second grade, were absent without notice. She called the Martin home to check on the girls, expecting Barbara or her brother Ken to pick up and explain why the kids were out, but no one answered. With growing concern, Charlotte then called Ulysses S. Grant High School and learned the girl's older sister, 14-year-old Barbie, was also not in class. It was soon discovered that Ken Martin hadn't shown up for work that day. He was employed as an electrical engineer for Eccles Electric Home Service Company in downtown Portland, and his boss found it very unlike Ken to not already be there when he arrived early that Monday. A friend of the Martins, Edward Lenz, probably after hearing about all of these unexplained absences, called the Multnomah County Sheriff's Office at 9.30 that night to report the family missing. Deputies were sent to the Martin residence. Three additional units were sent to Comb Larch Mountain by vehicle. This was the area the family was said to have traveled to the day before. Charlotte Dorsey was called, and she met with deputies at the Martin house a few minutes after 11 p.m., Neighbors interviewed said the family had not returned to the home since they'd left the day before, and that they always let neighbors know when they would be away for some time. Neighbor Ella Chin recalled seeing the Martins leave in the station wagon around 2 p.m. Kind of surprising they left that late. It is, and that actually that actually comes into play as far as theories go about what happened. Because this is mid mid December. What was the date? Yeah, December seventh. So it's oh, getting... so early December. So it's still getting dark by about five. Yeah, five. It's pretty dark out. Yeah, just about. Mm. Yeah. So I agree. And it's... if Larch Mountain sounds familiar to people, that was the Whitney Heichel case, one of our very first ones. That was where she was found. Inside the home, Charlotte noted Ken's Santa suit on a chair in the living room, and Barbara's reading glasses on the mantel. 
A thawed package of deli paper-wrapped ground beef sat on the kitchen sink's drain board, and wet clothes needing a hang-dry sat in the washing machine, both apparent signs the family intended to be back in only a few hours from their excursion. The search on Larch Mountain grew out from that point the next day, tracking along both the Oregon and Washington banks of the Columbia River and encompassing Mount Hood. There were hundreds of searchers from five state law enforcement agencies in Oregon and Washington scouring the area. Citizen searchers as well, assisted by boat, aircraft, car, and on foot. The massive search effort unearthed no trace of the Martins, nor their vehicle. There was a nearly endless array of possible sightings of the family in their station wagon from other drivers on the highway that day. Multnomah County Sheriff's Office Detective Walter Graven was the lead on the case and took down many, many witness statements in his duties. There was a married couple driving on Larch Mountain who said they encountered the Martins at a tree farm around 2.30 p.m., recalling the distinct station wagon and three girls with the parents. A machinist from nearby Troutdale reported to police that he drove behind the Martins' car as he came down from Larch Mountain that afternoon. An insurance salesman driving out to Eastern Oregon believed he passed the Martin station wagon around 10.30 p.m. the night they disappeared. Another married couple reported that a few days before Christmas, they saw buzzards circling a canyon between the Dalles and Hood River. A search of the canyon turned up nothing. In Boise on the night of December 15th, quote, a police officer said he checked a red and white Ford station wagon in a gravel pit just off the Columbia River Highway. Two young men were sleeping in the station wagon. The officer wrote down the license plate on a piece of paper, which he then lost. When the gravel pit was eventually rechecked, there was no sign of the car. I'm sorry. Diligent work, sir. You lost the paper? Are you kidding me? All he had to you do... You have one job. Well, Clearly he, you're well, not interrupting most them. of it. He did most of the job. He just He's didn't like, I'll hold let on them to sleep, that information. But I'm going to go ahead and write this down and promptly lose it. <laughs> I like. I, I could have solved the whole case. I do one and two. I don't do three. That's like uh, Homeboy wrote Camaro. Yes. Like, oh, yeah. Almost had it. Kelsey and Doris Knutson's report from their scenic drive in the gorge on December 7th was submitted to the FBI. They reported the Martin station wagon parked on an access road adjacent to the roadway below the Bridge of the Gods. Two young men were standing outside the vehicle talking to the people inside. The Knutsons continued heading west and thought nothing of the sighting until news of the family's disappearance was released. Another pair of witnesses, Fishers heading west out of Hood River, saw two cars parked in the same area relayed by the Knutsons that evening. This pair wasn't sure of the color of one car, but the other was a light station wagon with a Christmas tree in the back. No one was inside. On December 16th, Ken's sister, Charlotte Dorsey, announced a $500 reward for information on the disappearances, which through donations grew to $1,000 by Christmas Eve. This offer came to nothing. An Associated Press article printed two weeks after the disappearances notes Candy Lane's missing candy cane decorations. A neighbor interviewed said they just didn't have the heart to put out the decorations that year. There was little cheer that Christmas, as the Martin home sat on the block like an empty tomb. December 23rd, Charlotte Dorsey collected the mail at the empty Martin house. One of the letters was a credit card bill from a service station in Cascade Locks, 43 miles east of Portland on the Columbia. The paper showed Ken Martin's card, made a five-gallon gasoline purchase there on December 7th. It was the first piece of tangible evidence, marking a single point in a tiny town along the 80-mile span of the gorge. By January, the search had moved to the water. The prevailing theory was that the family had gone over the side of the highway and become submerged in the Columbia. 
divers checked a half dozen points on the river where the station wagon might have gone over. They were areas of road with no guardrails to the water below. Helicopters assisted in the search, and radar devices were used. The river level was lowered below the Bonneville Dam, and there was also a ton of press and TV cameras along for the search. Again, no trace of the family or their vehicle was found. At that point, the search was suspended indefinitely. It seemed like no agency wanted jurisdiction over the case. That same month, or maybe the next, Donald D. Bain, an amateur investigator, was doing a solo ground search in the Dalles, 20 miles east of Hood River. As he walked the access road near an aluminum factory, something caught his eye. Tire tracks. They cut into the dirt, off the road, and ran deeply a short distance to a cliff edge and a 20-foot drop to the river below. Don followed the tracks to the edge. To get a direct view of the water, he got onto his belly and peered down. Just out of his arm's reach were paint scrapings on the rocks below. Don could see several marks, and they were off-white, the same as the Martin's car. Don Bain delivered his findings to Oregon State Police in the Dalles. The chief there, Charles Uren, thought nothing of it. He said the Martins wouldn't have been there because there were no Christmas trees in that area. They already had the tree, though, according to witnesses. These cops. They're super logical and really good at their jobs. They don't get a bell ring. No. that's I think that's like the first irritating thing that they have done here, or sort of uh, lacking. But there's going to be a few more. <laughs> there always are. The location of the paint scrapings was described as, quote, 100 feet west of city limits of the Dalles near Harvey Aluminum Company, which is now closed. It was an area the Martins had no known reason to drive to and certainly no reason to leave the road, bouncing across rough terrain to the edge and the drop. Detective Walter Graven said, There was only one set of tracks. There had never been another car out through there, and it never came back out. Casts later made from the tracks at the cliff site were consistent with the tires on the Martins' wagon, said to be white walls. Months after Don Bain discovered the cliffside paint scrapings, May 2, 1959, another married couple, the Colbys, were at Cascade Locks for some early morning fishing. While his spouse Jonetta dozed in their car, Ellery Colby prepped his lines, and he happened to glance up from his work to see a pair of shapes floating downstream about 40 feet away. Ellery moved along the shoreline, keeping pace with the objects, and realized they were two bodies face down. He returned to the car and his wife, and they sped to the nearby Bridge of the Gods to keep an eye on the bodies as they floated further along the river and out of sight. The Ellerys reported the event to a Multnomah County official a few days later. They hesitated to report it initially because they thought it might have been a hoax. The day before the bodies floated past the Colbys, a tugboat working on the river exactly below the cliffside where Don Bain found those paint scrapings hooked something with its anchor. The crew was setting up a drilling rig to install a dock for the Harvey Aluminum plant when their two-ton anchor hooked something heavy in the deep water and rolled it over. They pulled the anchor in with the heavy object still attached, but it fell off into much deeper water just before reaching the surface. The drill rig operator on the deck tapped the rising object with a pike pole before it fell and said he touched steel. The tug's captain, Eugene Dimmick, felt certain it was a car. The crew, quote, also reported that a bundle of what looked like clothing popped up and floated off in the river's swift current. On May 3rd, the body of 10-year-old Susan Martin was found floating below Bonneville Dam in Camas Slough. The next day, Virginia's body was found floating among debris in a spillway of the Bonneville Dam. 
The Oregonian newspaper, with help from the U.S. Corps of Engineers, received estimates that the body's arrival downriver was consistent with the speed of the flow of the Columbia, supposing they were loosened from a car at the Dalles by that anchor. Mm. After the girls' bodies were found, the search area was narrowed, excluding the area below the dam. A dive took place at that spot on May 13th. Fred Devine Diving and Salvage Inc. undertook the dive and found nothing. The bodies of Barbara, Ken, and Barbie Martin, if they were underwater, never surfaced. Multnomah County Detective Walter Graven interviewed the captain of the tug and the drill rig operator who'd hooked the large mysterious object in the Columbia on May 1st. Aside from the events of that day, Ben Howland, the rig operator who'd poked the mysterious object before it fell, confided in Graven that at some earlier point, a man living in the area named Roy Light tried to sell him a beat-up 38 Colt Commander handgun. Now, I'm not going to continue with that, but the gun is going to come back in a minute. I just have to get into some other stuff first. But keep the gun just off to the side. It was thought the tugboat's anchor had smashed a window, popped the trunk, or wrenched open a door when it hooked the submerged car. Susan and Virginia, being the smallest of the family, were released from the station wagon through the opening and floated to the surface. The bodies of Ken, Barbara, and Barbie were too large to pass and remained at the bottom of the river. So are we thinking that bundle of clothes they saw was actually the girls? Yeah, at least one of them they saw mm. pop up, yeah. Susan and Virginia's bodies were remarkably well-preserved, indicating they lay in cold water, undisturbed by the river's currents until the day they returned to the surface. Only the skin on the portions of the bodies at the surface were discolored and black. They hadn't been floating long. At autopsy, they were identified by dental records. The girls' last meal had been hamburgers and fries from their last known sighting at the Paradise Snack Bar in Hood River. Their causes of death were listed as drowning, but, and this is a quote from Echo of Distant Water, which I read uh, for research in this case, it is important to note, though, that in order to conclude drowning as the actual cause of death, all other causes must be ruled out first, which was not the case. An interesting wrinkle from a 1999 Oregonian article written by Margie Boulay, former Multnomah County Deputy Sheriff Russell Bissett was working in the Identification Bureau at the time the girls' bodies surfaced, and he was tasked with fingerprinting them. Though most articles and reports he read stated the bodies showed no signs of trauma, Russell refuted this. He recalled later that, quote, both girls had holes in their skulls, identical holes, above and behind their right ears. Oh. I thought they were from a gunshot or a blow. It was impossible to examine the bodies at this late date, as Susan and Virginia had been dead for 40 years, and they'd long since been cremated. Why cremate? Why do they do that? Something like that ever happens to you where there's any kind of question, Anything. I would fight it yeah. so hard. Yeah. That's like when the when the husband kills the wife and then mm -hmm. he's like, oh, within eight hours you you had her yeah burned to, to yeah. Cinder. And then yeah. he's showing up to Easter with a new girlfriend mm -hmm. two days later. Mm -hmm. Listen, I'll be cremated unless it's a suspicious death. I, you will keep me propped up in that living room until we know more. Oh, and the thing I I don't think I'll I'll probably remember to mention later, but the girls were cremated in 1959. And then their remains sat there at the funeral home for 10 years. What? I guess, assume 1969. Someone, they don't know who, picked them up. <gasps> Funerals were held for Virginia and Susan Martin on May 23rd, 1959. Their brother Donald mixed up the dates of the services and arrived too late to attend. <sighs> Donald! He he's, does not have he's this stuff together. He's doing his own thing. 
Another memorial service was held for the still-missing members of the Martin family at the Rose City Park Methodist Church on Sunday, October 18, 1959. It was packed with more than 400 attendees. Additional rows of chairs were necessary to accommodate the extra butts. Now I'm going to tell you about the mysterious abandoned Chevy. The police chief of Cascade Locks noticed the 1951 cream-colored Tudor sedan on December 8, 1958, the day after the Martins disappeared, and eventually had it towed to a nearby shell station in Hood River 10 days later. It had also been reported to police by numerous drivers. It was left on the north side of the highway, in the only spot on that section of road where a vehicle could pull over and park. According to the Oregonian, quote, the area is seven miles east of the service station where Martin signed for five gallons of gasoline on the day the family disappeared. The flashy sedan had twin rear fender antennas, a custom leather interior. It was decorated with style lines painted over the main body paint. It had flashy hubcaps and aftermarket fenders. The keys were in the ignition, the doors were locked, and there was a tiny amount of gas in the tank. That's odd. Uh, that it's such a flashy car? No, that it was left that way. I agree. Kinky. Mm-hmm. Police learned that the car was stolen in Venice, California, from its owner, Mario Alvarez. Mr. Alvarez thought he was lending his car to a friend, Lester Price, but the car never came back. And Alvarez wasn't able to file a theft report because he'd lent out the car. Nothing more is known of the Chevy after it was towed to Hood River. Lester Price was formerly incarcerated in San Quentin Prison. From the Oregonian, he was described as a burglar and car thief, and he had a record of arrests in at least seven states. Hood River Sheriff Rupert Gilmouth, on IDing Price and connecting him to the Chevy, said, quote, This looks like the best clue we have had, and this fits the occasion the best of anything we have had. Lester Price was known to have been visiting a friend just across the Columbia at Dallasport. This friend's name was Roy Light. And Roy Light was the alias of someone who'd brushed up against law enforcement many, many times, a man named Richard Allen Hunt. 26-year-old Richard Hunt was originally from Salem, Oregon. From 1952 to 1957, he'd spent nearly four years incarcerated. Jails in California and Oregon for theft, and three years at Deer Lodge State Prison in Montana for grand larceny. Paroled in January 1957, he lived with a relative in Riddle, Oregon. In early 1958, he worked on a ranch in Bighorn, Wyoming for a month before he took off in a car stolen from the ranch owner's daughter. He passed a bunch of bad checks in Idaho during April 1958 and stole a bunch of cars. He moved around a lot, working on ranches in multiple states. The Salem Capital Journal called Hunt a former Salem resident, ex-convict, and man of many aliases. He was known to be an excellent marksman with a love of crossword puzzles. By March of 1959, Richard Hunt was working on a dairy farm in Albany, Oregon, churning butters and squeezing udders. Around 30 miles south of Albany on March 24, 1959, the Harrisburg chief of police, Ernest McPhee, pulled over a sedan for displaying improper license plates. The driver was Richard Hunt. After a brief discussion and inspection of the vehicle, Hunt asked the amount of the fine he had to pay. Chief McPhee said 10 bucks, and Hunt leaned down to grab his wallet, but he instead popped up holding a pearl-handled 45, and he forced McPhee into the car. Hunt drove, holding the gun to the police chief's neck, threatening to blow his fucking head off if he moved. The Plymouth sped north going 90, and McPhee tried asking Hunt about his reason for the hostage-taking, and said the man was unable to explain his actions. 
Richard Hunt eventually pulled over and kicked McPhee out of the car, nine miles outside of Harrisburg, on a rural road. By this point, Brownsville Police Chief Bob Kemnow and Oregon State Police Officer Gene Richardson were in close pursuit of Hunt when the Plymouth veered out of control and crashed into a roadside ditch. Hunt, also armed with a 30 caliber rifle, ran from the crash into a nearby barn. He fired from inside as officers closed in. Chief Kemnow was shot in the head, and Richard Hunt escaped the barn, fleeing across a creek, diving through poison oak, and vanishing over a ridge. Chief Kemnow survived his injury and eventually returned to his position as Brownsville police chief. The bullet fired by Hunt struck his temple, traveled to the back of his skull under the skin, exited, and lodged into his shoulder. Whoa. So just a miracle shot, yeah. Richard Hunt was still at large, and he was now on the FBI's 10 most wanted list. Hunt remained at large for more than two months before his peaceful capture on June 2, 1959. This was in Thermopolis, Wyoming. And Richard Hunt was eating lunch when he was snatched up by the sheriff there after a local recognized him from a wanted flyer. So he was like a, you know, a shoot it out sort of criminal. And the sheriff just kind of walked up and said, hey, bud. And he said, you got me. <laughs> ah, drats. He was returned to Lynn County after his arrest and sentenced to life in prison nine days later. In June of 1966, his conviction was vacated, and he was resentenced due to two state Supreme Court rulings which made life sentences not possible for convictions of intent to kill. He was given credit for the seven years he served and had already been on parole for a year. That's wild. Isn't that... Shot a sheriff in the head and went on the run? And was an FBI uh, most wanted fugitive, yeah. And stole a car. <sighs> yeah. I mean, not that you should get life for that, but still, he had a record. Yeah, I was shocked to find that out. Wow. Richard Hunt was married in October 1969 in Vancouver, Washington. He and his wife, Catherine, had three children. Richard worked as a wood planer until his retirement, and in his leisure time, he fished and enjoyed the outdoors. Richard died in Lyons, Oregon on May 19th, 2023, at 90 years old. So he got out, and it seemed like he, he lived a straightforward life from that point on. Wow. I'd like to know how much his family knew. I don't know. You but know, like, did his kids know that he uh, did that? I don't know. Well, they. I think maybe the obituary, sometimes we read obituaries and you can see what is omitted mm, and you mm -hmm. can kind of extrapolate a lot from what isn't there. <laughs> and this one jumps, his his jumps about 17 years of his life <laughs> and it's it's these years. He was doing great and then he did other stuff. And Yeah, uh, it was like he was in the, he was in the army. And then he got married in 1969. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> now we have to go back to December 1958, when Richard Allen Hunt and Lester Price were seen the day the Martins disappeared, seated inside the Paradise Snack Bar, where the Martins ate burgers the afternoon of their vanishing. The place's owner, Charles Maynard Cody, knew both men and recognized them. Quote, Cody was himself an ex-con and operated in the same circles as the two men. So why the sweet deal resentencing and parole for Richard Hunt? Well, between December 7th and 10th, 1958, Richard Hunt, under the name Roy Light, and car thief Lester Price were bunking across the river in Dallasport, Washington, at a place called Peggy's Rooms, which was a brothel in operation until 1962, when the feds shut it down. The place was run by sex trafficker Clifford Slim Bennett, a close associate of Portland Vice Lord Big Jim Elkins. 
I covered the saga of Big Jim in my episode, The Bourbon and Ham Club, which details Portland's vice scandal of 1956, which exposed but scantily punished widespread corruption and organized crime. It culminated in testimony given to a Senate committee headed by Robert Kennedy. And this is a quote defining the Bourbon and Ham Club. The allegations concerning the Bourbon and Ham Club were denied. Various witnesses indicated that the club was merely a device used to celebrate elections. The Bourbon and Ham Club held meetings at the press club during which everyone could drink all the bourbon, eat all the ham, and play all the poker they wanted. The club served as a meeting place for politicians and the press, and as such was part of the established informal network in Portland. Indeed, the involvement of gamblers in occasional meetings of the Bourbon and Ham Club points out the essentially corrupt nature of the relationships between city, newspaper, and gambling people. So what I'm saying is they were all entwined, Mm -hmm. it seems. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if I said, but uh, Slim Bennett, the guy who has the brothel in Dallas port, was one of the guys that had to testify at that Senate committee. Oh, yeah. Okay. He was a real he was a real bitch about it, though. He <laughs> pled the fifth on everything. But he was I think he was uh, Big Jim Elkins, second or third in command. He was a big deal in organized crime in Portland. Oh, OK. But after that vice scandal, Slim Bennett relocated across the Columbia to Washington to kind of distance himself from Big Jim and that whole scandal. In fact, it was directly across from the cliff where Don Bain found those paint scrapings and one-way tire tracks. I believe you can see across the river to the spot where the, where the brothel was from oh, yeah, that probably. spot. Yeah. Detective Walter Graveman interviewed Bennett during the spring of 1959. Slim confirmed Roy Light and Lester Price bunked there from December 7th through the 10th, 1958. He remembered because the three watched a big boxing match on Slim's television but he had no idea where they'd gone after leaving his establishment. And Roy Light is Richard Hunt, if you'll yeah. recall. Okay. One factor being considered by police is the disappearance of Lester Kenneth Price, 31-year-old ex-convict wanted in Los Angeles for auto theft, and Roy Light. Their disappearance occurred about the time the search for the Martins veered from the Larch Mountain vicinity to the Columbia River Gorge. Lester Price was seen boarding a Greyhound bus in Portland on Christmas Day, 1958, headed for San Francisco. And Richard Hunt reappeared for law enforcement when he kidnapped one police chief and shot another in the head in March of 1959. Neither of them was ever questioned in connection with the Martin case. Detective Graven never wrote it down, but he passed along to associates that the Oregon State Police and Multnomah County Sheriff Francis Lambert, quote, had money tied up in the Dallasport brothel in the late 1950s. State police were well aware of Bennett's operations in Dallasport and were looking to keep him out of the limelight in the wake of the Portland Vice scandal. This would explain why the case went cold so quickly. If the brothel became involved in the investigation of the Martins, the sheriff and OSP's involvement would be exposed, and a fresh vice scandal would be born. Instead, they buried it. Some classic bourbon and ham club hijinks. And now, the blood-covered gun. Three weeks after the Martins' disappearance, on January 18, 1959, Theodore Hellyer of Odell, Oregon, a few miles south of Hood River, was taking a walk when he found a 38 Colt Commander automatic handgun beside a rock just west of Cascade Locks. Its butt was badly damaged as though it had been used to strike something repeatedly. One round from the magazine of nine had been fired, but the casing hadn't ejected. Using it as a makeshift hammer may have bent its frame, causing it to jam. It was given to Hood River Sheriff Rupert Gilmouth who later returned it to the man unexamined. Detective Graven called a 38 automatic a rather unusual gun. Quote, I have followed a lot worse trails. 
you don't see many 38 automatics. In a 1986 interview, Bonnie Cox, Hellyer's wife, said when he first discovered it, it was completely coated with the dried blood from whatever they had clubbed. They had clubbed something to death, apparently. The gun was connected by its serial number to Meyer and Frank at the department store in Portland, where Donald Martin, son of Canon Barbara Martin, once worked and was fired from. Hmm. In late December 1958, when first gathering background information on the Martins, Detective Graven interviewed the manager of Meyer and Frank and learned that Donald had been fired for alleged theft from the store. And one of the items known to be stolen during his employment was a 38 Colt <sighs> Commander handgun. Well, that is Whoa. interesting. Isn't that interesting? Donald, oh. Donald, Donald. I know. Interesting how he mixed up the funeral dates and didn't collect their ashes. Yeah. Didn't go to one of them. He was the hmm. sole beneficiary as well. <gasps> Interesting. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Yeah. So he inherited everything you say. Which they, which I did read was modest. Still. Uh, yeah, still. Yeah, but for back then, you didn't need much to start a whole life. Yeah, you could buy a house with like quarters or yeah. something. <laughs> Just a bunch of cans. I work part-time at the gas station. Can I have this multifamily home? And Thank you me. only needed one salary for the household. I send all eight of my kids to college. <laughs> <laughs> I sent them with $5 pinned to their sweater. <laughs> An Oregonian article titled What Really Happened to the Martins, written by Ann Sullivan, was published in December 1967. Before it was published, Sullivan sent a letter to her editors. Here is a quote. When you get around to discussing, I'll tell you personally the important left outs. The young man who lived in the Martin house, who had an apartment at Cascade Locks, was believed to have stolen the gun we can't use because of invasion of privacy suit. Whoa. Someone was living there. Do we know who this person is? We do. Oh, this is a different person than Donald. This isn't the son. This is not Donald. This is someone else that lived in their house. Yep. (gasps) And had an apartment in Cascade Locks. Yeah. uh, Allegedly Allegedly. lived with them. No, no. The the apartment in Cascade Locks is legit. Okay, but But allegedly. We don't know if they lived with the Martins, but it seems that way. It's implied. Yeah. and And yeah, this is all. Alleged. I mean, there's the stuff that's provable, but the stuff that it's all alleged. Oh, what are we, a, a podcast about celebrity blinds? <laughs> Allegedly. Well, I just don't know. There's, I just, just a blanket. It hasn't been proven. No. But it has been brought up. Later that month, December 1967, after Ann Sullivan's article is published, Multnomah County reopens the investigation. Donald Martin came back to Portland in June of 1959. I don't know if that was the first time he came back since the family went missing and the two bodies were, were recovered. I think it was. I think he, because he missed the few, he missed that service in May. So it must have been when he, when he first came back. Anyways, so June of 1959, Detective Graven interviews him and he finds out, well, a lot of family information. He finds out that Donald is gay. I think there was bad blood between him and his parents because of that. It was alleged that he set up some sort of encounter where his parents would kind of catch him in the act. Oh, and I think that might have happened. And then that might have been why he was shipped off to New oh. York. In your opinion of what you've read, why would that have happened? Like he was, it was that a way of him coming out? I believe so. Without yeah. having to sit to say. and I think okay. so. And I think a way to sort of uh, like needle them. I think he maybe wanted to irk them in some mm. way to bother them with it. Donald Martin had an apartment near Portland State where I think he was going. And he had a roommate at the time, this guy named Wayne who also worked at Meyer and Frank, I think at the same time. Hmm. And I don't know if he was fired, 
But in this interview with with Detective Graven, uh, Donald Martin said, I don't play with guns. I like pretty things like a girl. These are like weird quotes from him to sort of like really sell that he's not an aggressive person, I guess. I don't know. Hmm. It was a very weird interview. And I, I, I can't say that. Well, it's just odd. He said he didn't he wouldn't have stolen that gun. But Wayne liked guns. That's a quote. So he's hmm. kind of like kind of pointing this at at his friend Wayne. His father is a Kiwanis Club president. Mm. So he had a fair amount of influence. And Wayne lived in Cascade Locks. I think he was working as a teacher at the time. This is, and Wayne is the guy who is said to have lived with the Martins. Oh. So he could have, yeah, that, that could have been where all of this sort of. Were there implications that Wayne and Donald were in a relationship? Kind of. I mean, not to mm-hmm. out either of them if they weren't out, but I'm just curious if that it was seems an element. Of, it seems sort of implied. There was an interview with Wayne that was done, I think, by Coin in one of the sort of retrospective documentaries mm-hmm. that they did. And in that, he, it was it sort of sounded that way. It sounded to me, at least, like he was saying that without really saying it, mm. that Donald showed him about that lifestyle and stuff oh, like that. Okay. But in a very uh, nebulous sort of way, nothing concrete. But I got that sense. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. In the book I read, that Echo of Distant Water, the author doesn't mention this dude's name at all. He just he uses his name, Wayne, which is actually his middle name. So Wayne Saban went to college for two years at Portland State. For a time, he lived with Donald Martin, maybe in the home, and, and I believe in an apartment together. After college, he worked as a high school teacher in Cascade Locks, and then he moved to Germany for 30 years uh, to teach. He taught physical education, science, and math and coaching track and field. Interesting. That he left for 30 years. Yeah, I thought yeah. so too. And he got married, I think, two or three months after the Martins disappeared. Hmm. Not that it's weird, but just... The timing just is timing. interesting. The timing is interesting. So yeah, all of that is very... It's connectable, but it's not you know provable or anything actionable yeah, or anything. Yeah, it's very circumstantial and also uh, depending on how you feel about coincidences. Yeah. So the investigation had been reopened, I think I mentioned before. And on Valentine's Day, 1968... A report was published based on, the, on this new investigation into the Martin disappearance, and it concluded that the family died in an accident at Cascade Locks. No foul play. This report was filed by OSP investigator Sergeant Henry Kaczynski. Detective Graven was not allowed to head this new investigation. On the website for the book on the Martin case, Echo of Distant Water, author J.B. Fisher features a previously unpublished photo of Sergeant Kaczynski and Slim Bennett posing for a reporter outside the Multnomah County Jail in 1957. With big smiles on their faces and Slim playfully hiding behind Kaczynski, it's clear they were bourbon and ham in it all the way, and not even trying to mask it. They were friends, it looked like. Good old buddies. Hmm. And another article from uh, Miss Boulay in 1999, after his retirement, Walter Graven spoke out. He'd been ordered not to write any reports that might indicate foul play. Hmm. So speaking of the book, Echo of Distant Water by, by J.B. Fisher, it was uh, invaluable in writing this episode. It's just chock full of timeline information. And he exposed a lot of connective uh, elements to, these, to, to, this, to this case and had access to Detective Graven's personal notebooks and archives. Oh, wow. And so, yeah, he, he was able to really put a lot of things together. It's, it's a very interesting book. And the theory, the kind of main theory that they put forth is this. And this is supported by those personal writings that, that Graven had. And it goes like this. 14-year-old Barbie Martin got pregnant. The oh. family's Christmas tree trip was a smokescreen 
And they were actually going to secretly meet with the man who'd statutorily raped her or someone who could perform maybe an abortion in secret to kind of get rid of the problem, you know? Mm. Graven thought this for two reasons, one of them not so substantial, that Barbie had gone to a different doctor, and Barbie is the 14-year-old. Barbie had gone to a different doctor in Vancouver, Washington, instead of their family pediatrician a month or two before, which is kind of odd. Also, the server at the Paradise Snack Bar recalled Barbie Martin ordering a hamburger like everyone else did at at the diner, but that her mother said no because she didn't want her to gain any more weight. So... Hmm. How does that, well, I don't know if you're about to answer this, how does that wrap back around to the guys having a brothel and and having, that they happen to be at the same cafe? So they have the meal, people recognize them there, they get back on the road, but when they do, someone has stowed themselves in the back of the station wagon. And as they pull out, this person comes forward, strong arms them, takes over the car, forces them to drive where they want, maybe under the Bridge of the Gods, where they meet up with another car, and that has the person who set this up. And that person, I don't think they're saying is Donald. I do feel like the theory is that maybe it's Wayne. Hmm. So it's either that there is some sort of plot where someone was hired to collect the family for some reason, shame, something that the family didn't want exposed, and instead they were taken and disappeared somehow. And that it was done by Roy Light and... Lester Price mm-hmm. and, and Roy Light, of course, I mean, Richard Allen Hunt. And then the other thought is that it was that they just happened to be in the Paradise Snack Bar that day and decided to, to, to hit them because it was a good crime of opportunity. Hmm. But then you have the gun. Yeah, the gun. is, And he worked there and that's where it came from. So, like, yeah. that's his gun. Or it's or it's uh, his, or it's Wayne's gun. Yeah, it's but too, bloody, not just the gun being there. That's one thing. Oh, yeah. The bl- it, the gun is there and it matches this situation of stealing from the store. Uh, and uh, Richard Hunt tried to sell uh, that one guy the uh, uh, this kind of gun. Oh, right. In the time between, yeah. Wow, that's fascinating. And I don't even know if that's true. I don't even know if that, if that was a, someone just trying to insert themselves further into the story right. or if that actually happened. Wow. It's hard to say. Well, I can see why it's been an intriguing mystery for... 60 something years now you know bringing this very long ago case to today with the united justice group the families of the five victims of this year that are possibly connected and and all of that and with wilma's case we've been meeting as groups lately and there's been some sex trafficking survivors there and it's all about how high up it goes that that's why it's such an issue because when you are trying to call the police on someone and it's the police, you're not going to get help, you know? So there are implications of high-level government people and police and other people that are in that place of power and authority that participate in this. And so how would that be any different 50, 60 years ago? You know, so it's very easy for me to connect that and go, well, If they think the people connected to the brothel had anything to do with the Martin family, the police are not going to want anything moving forward because it's them. (laughs) Because you look at the receipts and they'll be like, huh, a lot of the sheriff's department comes here. Dark world out there. Indeed. You're welcome. And now to Jasa's... 
Big old dumper. Big old dumper on that thing. Speaking of the last name, I think I'm going to go change my name back. Hell yeah. Sweet. But I realized my license is almost expired, so I need to be quick about it. Oh, oh yeah. I you got to get it done before you have to do that. Oh, yeah. I think I'm going to change my name to Eichelberger. Okay. <laughs> I'm sure that's not weird or anything. <laughs> You're leaving it. I'm my taking it. My friend's changing her name, and someone's got to pick it up. And then Alicia will become an Eichelberger, too, and then you'll both be Eichelbergers. Yep. Oh my God. That'll be our married name. <laughs> I can go home and poop in peace. That's right. Pieces. On, uh, you know? Mm hmm. Station Magan. Station Magan. Whoa. Station Magan. <laughs> what kind of car do you drive? Station, Station Magan. A Ford Station Magan. 1974 Station Magan. Tummy queefs. You being a little baby bitch? You being a little pussy bitch? <laughs> Bend over, I'll spank it out of you. She's high off of chomping on a ding dong all night. <laughs> he teached, uh, he teached. Aftermarket fenders. Ah, it had ha ah, That in order to, that in. Oh. <laughs> was that Robin dancing yes, on my own? It was. Ah, I love it. <laughs> Somebody said you got a new friend. <laughs> Murder in the Rain is a Cascade Media production, written, hosted, and edited by Josh McCullough, Emily Rowney, and Alicia Holland. Feel free to email us at murderintherain at gmail.com or through our website, murderintherain.com. For as little as a dollar a month, you can subscribe on Patreon to get exclusive access to ad-free and older episodes. For only $5, you can access Patreon-exclusive episodes and content. For more of us, be sure to follow on all the socials, listen to Josh and Alicia on their other show, Always Be My Sisters, and follow Emily on TikTok at M underscore Murder in the Rain. And suck my balls. <laughs>